Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 34 through 41. Again, that's Matthew 25, verses 34 through 41. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Good evening. Uh, First of all, I'd like to start off by extending a huge thank you to the congregation here at Mount Juliet. Uh, it means a lot to all of us here from Freed that, uh, for the scholarship that they've set up so that we can attend Freed Hardman and uh, further our educations as Bible majors and hopefully become future ministers um, in whatever way we decide to choose. Uh, we're all so blessed to be part of a congregation that cares so much about the youth and cares so much about um, doing good for those in the world around us. If you died right now, where would you go? Where would you spend all of eternity? We hear that question all the time. And in a perfect world, all of us would be able to answer with confidence, with no hesitation, heaven. But we know that the world isn't perfect. We're not perfect individuals. And chances are, for a lot of us, the answer is I don't know. For most of us, the answer is I really don't know where I'm going to end up when I die. How can we truly know something about eternity? I mean, it's so hard for us to grasp the concept of eternity because here on earth we live such time-constrained lives. The idea of forever seems completely foreign to us and something that we just can't understand. The first thing we have to ask us if we want to know where we'll end up, first of all, is if we've obeyed the gospel, put on Christ in baptism, and followed His law correctly. After that... There really is no 100% way to know where we're going to end up. There's no way of knowing. We, just, we can hope. We can have faith that we've lived the lives we're supposed to. But in the end, it's all up to God on Judgment Day. But I think there's a way we can get a pretty good idea of it. In the verse that was read so capably for us by Timothy, um, the verses in Matthew, uh, for time's sake, I'm not, I won't read through that whole thing again, But, basically, in that passage, Jesus gives us two options. In one option, you do good, you help people, you bring heaven to this earth, and you get to live in heaven for eternity. On the other side, you don't do good for people, you bring bad into this world, and, obviously, he says that you have to live in the eternal fire set for you for all of eternity. I 
I think thinking of it in terms of bringing heaven to this earth and bringing hell into this earth is something that we need to think about more often. It's not just doing good and doing bad. It's, it's more than that. A certain author puts it this way, and I like the way he words it. He says, When Jesus talks about heaven and hell, there are first and foremost present realities that have serious implications for the future. Either can be invited to earth right now through our actions. It's possible for heaven to invade earth, and it's possible for hell to invade earth. So for the next, so for the next few minutes, I'm going to be talking about how we do that, how one goes about inviting heaven to this earth, how one goes about inviting hell to this earth. I think we can all agree that the latter of those two isn't a good thing. But how does it happen? How does someone get to a point in their lives where them and their surroundings are so completely devoid of God? How do they get to that point? You don't just wake up one day and think, I'm just going to hurt as many people as I possibly can. I'm going to live a life as terrible as I possibly can. You don't just wake up thinking that. It has to start somewhere. It has to progress from somewhere. And I think it starts from you doing absolutely nothing. I don't think you have to do anything to be able to start the invitation for hell to come into this world. It starts by holding some coats. Just some coats. Some coats that belong to some very highly respected people, some very highly regarded people of the time. You're watching over these coats because the men they belong to are in the process of murdering a man right in front of your very eyes. I don't know you're thinking, Jamie, how in the world could that happen? Who would sit there and watch that happen? But we see this very scenario play out in the end of Acts chapter 7. If you look with me in Acts chapter 7 and verse 58, it says, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is the same Saul that we'll later come to see become Paul and become one of the greatest uh, apostles for Christ in all of history. But right now we see him. He's watching over some coats of people who were stoning a man named Stephen. Stephen was a man, he was a godly man who was doing his best to bring heaven, bring God to these people of Jerusalem in the form of the gospel of Christ. And that didn't sit well with some people, so they decided to kill him. Saul could have easily said, I had nothing to do with that stoning. I had nothing to do with the murdering of Stephen. I never cast the first stone at him. All I did was stand there. But we know that he doesn't do that. Later on in one of his letters, Saul will go on to say that basically, if I could have, I would have. He basically says, if I could have been one of the ones throwing those stones, I would have done it in a heartbeat. See, because it all starts with holding some coats. It started with him doing nothing, and then it only got worse from there. At the beginning of Acts 9... We see where Saul, it's finally, he finally gets the idea in his head that it's not good enough just to get the Christians that are in Jerusalem. It's not good enough just to get those Christians that are living there in his hometown, or in the area that he's living. He decides he wants to take it to the next level. He wants to go all the way up to Damascus to capture the Christians who fled there to hide and bring them back to Jerusalem in bondage. If you don't know anything about the geography of this area, 
Jerusalem's right here. Damascus is way up here. It's not like just going from here to Lebanon or Hermitage. The journey between these two cities was about 150 to 200 miles. 150 to 200 miles on foot. That's a pretty long journey. Oh yeah, and I forgot to mention that there's a huge mountain range that divides these two cities. Jerusalem, Damascus, huge mountain range right in the middle, along with a couple rivers he would have had to cross too. Explain to me how Saul went from holding some coats at a stoning to trekking across the country to capture Christians himself no matter what it took. The same thing kind of happens in our lives today. This can apply to a lot of different situations in our lives. But think about the last time you were around a group of people who were gossiping. Put yourself in that situation. You're standing there with them. You're not saying anything. You're minding your own business. But they're over here talking about somebody. You're kind of keeping to yourself. You're not involved in the conversation in any way. And slowly... Over time, you start listening to what they're saying. You start listening to the things they're saying about this person or these people. And you start getting into the conversation in your head. But you're still not really saying anything. You're still not saying anything to these people. And then finally one of them says something. And you chime in with, oh yeah, I heard that. I also heard that they did this and this and this. Well, now you're just like Saul. You started doing absolutely nothing. And it turned into you being one of the main participants of this conversation. Because you see, you didn't do anything to stop the situation. You didn't say, guys, you really shouldn't talk about people like that. It's not nice. You know, they're just rumors. They're probably not even true. If you're going to talk to somebody about it, talk to that person, not other people. You didn't do anything to turn that situation around. Luckily in Acts 9, we see Saul on the road to Damascus and we see his situation get turned around. God has to turn it around for him. But his situation gets turned around. The passage in uh, Acts 9 describes God coming to him on that road in a blinding light. And from then on, Saul is all gung-ho for Christianity in any way that he can. Uh, Our Acts professor at Freed describes it this way. Saul was going as fast as he could in one direction, 200 miles an hour. And that direction was bringing down Christianity as strong as he could. Then on the road to Damascus, God picked him up, turned him around, put him back down, and he went flying off in the exact opposite direction, just as fast as he had started. Except this time, he was trying to build up Christianity and build up what he had tried to destroy for so long. He started going into hell to bring heaven, to bring God back to the situation. Guys, we have to be doing the same things in our lives. We live in a society that tries to push God out of every single thing it possibly can. And it's our job as Christians to march into those situations, to go into those bad places and bring God back to them. Guys, it's up to us. But how do we do it? How do we go about bringing heaven to such a badly messed up place? I think when faced with a question like this, it's good to go to 
obviously it's good to go to the Bible. And I think the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke, uh, in Luke chapter 10 is a great example of this. In Luke chapter 10, we see a man who's mugged. He's beaten, he's robbed, he's left on the side of the road to die with about an inch of life left in him. Now, I can't really imagine walking upon a scene like this, something, a scene this brutal, much less walking upon it and then not doing anything to help that person. But that's exactly what we see in this story. Um, Luke 10, 31 and 32 says, Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. It's not like this man was beaten and thrown behind some bushes, hidden from view to die on his own. Verse 31 clearly states that the priest saw him and then passed by him. And verse 32 states that the the Levite came and looked at him and then passed by on the other side. So here we are in this tragic setting, but then we see the turnaround like we talked about before with Saul. We see the part where it gets turned around for the better and heaven is brought back to the situation. We see the good Samaritan come along in the following verses. And the verses say that he had compassion on the man. He had compassion on him. He dressed his wounds. He poured oil on his head. He put him on his own donkey and walked him to an inn. He even went so far as to give the innkeeper money so that he could take care of him in his absence. This Samaritan man gave up his time, his money, his supplies to give this man another shot at life. Today, it doesn't take an act like this to bring heaven back to earth. If, if presented with the opportunity, we certainly should take it. But odds are, most of us aren't going to be put in a position where we have the opportunity to save someone's life. So if we don't get the opportunities to make these big heroic, um, these big heroic quests to bring, heaven, to bring good back to a bad situation, how are we supposed to do it? It starts the same way as it started with their invitation for hell to come into the world, with something small. And then that small thing grows. There's a movie called Pay It Forward. Um, I've never seen it, but I've been told about it. And this movie is about a middle school class who is challenged by their teacher with a project. This project is to come up with some sort of plan or idea that would change the world. Now keep an idea, this is a middle school class. So most of the kids, you know, are thinking of recycling or alternative energy sources or other things like that. But then we see one kid who really takes us to the next level. His plan was to do a kind act for three people. Just three people do one kind act for each of them. They couldn't repay him in any way. When asked how they could repay him, all he would tell them is, you have to, in turn, help three more people. Guys, this is a deep plan. This is a deep idea. This wasn't just a last minute, oh man, I forgot to do my homework, I really got to get this done kind of plan. This wasn't a, I have better things to worry about than this stupid project. Uh, I'm just going to help some, say I'm going to help some people and be done with it. This kid realized that something small could start a revolution that would reach the entire world. 
you know how many people total would be helped if you went through the cycle of starting with the one person, him helping three people, those three people helping three more, and so on and so forth, after just ten cycles of this, 88,573 people total. From this one 12-year-old boy, in less than a day, think about how long it would take you to help three people or to do something kind for three people. Not very long. What started with one 12-year-old boy could very quickly, very quickly, turn into well over 88,000 people. Because this shows us that it doesn't take something huge. It doesn't take a monstrous act of heroism to bring good back to a bad situation. All it takes is an effort. All it takes is something small to set off the chain. All it takes is our decision. A decision. A conscious, efforted choice between options. We think back to all the examples we've used tonight. We see the example of uh, the stoning of Stephen and Saul and the Good Samaritan and uh, the movie Pay It Forward. We see Stephen, who is making a conscious, direct effort to bring Christianity to these people of Jerusalem. We see Saul, who is making a direct attempt to bring down Christianity any way he, can, he could, followed very quickly by efforts to strengthen it. The Good Samaritan, we see a priest and a Levite who totally ignore this dying man. They make a decision to not help this man. Then we see the Good Samaritan bring heaven back to the situation and make a decision to change it for the better. And pay it forward, we see a small 12-year-old boy who makes a conscious decision to change the world with just three small kind acts. Guys, this is the same conscious decision that God made to redeem us through Jesus Christ. It's the same decision. And God's given us the ability to make that decision. He's given us the ability to decide whether we want to invite heaven into this world and bring God back to the godless people. And He's also given us the ability to decide whether we want to invite hell into this earth and push God out of it. It's our choice. One drop of water can cause a ripple in an entire ocean. All it takes is one decision. Are you going to make the good one or the bad one? Are you going to follow the Matthew 25 Are you going to follow the Matthew 25 passage that we read earlier? I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Or are we going to go the other direction with it? And not feed the hungry or give drink to the thirsty or clothe the naked? It's up to us. If you want to know where you're going to end up for eternity, there really is no way to know 100%. But a pretty good indication would be to ask yourself, Which one am I creating in my life right now? I just want to take uh, a little bit of a time to say uh, thank you so much uh, to the elders uh, for allowing this opportunity for us young men to be able to come here from college on a weekend to be 
uh, back home with friends and family, uh, and the opportunity uh, and the chance to uh, preach God's Word. Uh, I personally want to thank this congregation uh, for seeing something in an 18-year-old that he never saw in himself. And if it wasn't for y'all and your love um, and pushing me to be a better person, I would not be here uh, today. So as much as this much, or as much as this means to me, uh, I just want to let y'all know that I really do love y'all, and I appreciate this opportunity. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. As the story is told, it's a, friend, it's a story about two best friends. One's name is Jacob, and the other's name is Matt. They grew up in the same church together and were, were a part of the same youth group. They went to Bible bowls together, youth rallies, and church camps. Even when they were young and in junior high, they always talked about what it would be like when they got to heaven together. High school comes. Around their junior year, things begin to change. Jacob, he continues to become a man of God, to grow in his word. Matt decides to take a different route. He begins to hang out with the wrong crowd, associate with the wrong friends, and live the party life. Quickly, the two's friendship was destroyed. And they went their separate ways. Graduation comes around. Both Matt and Jacob are graduating. But both of them decide on how to spend the night differently. Jacob celebrates with his family, goes out with some friends from the church. They head to a buddy's house and they hang out for the rest of the night. And then Matt goes out and he spends that night the same way he spent the last two years of his life. Parting it up. The next morning, Jacob wakes up to a lot of missed calls and a voicemail. You see, the voicemail was from Matt's mother talking about how Jacob or, or how Matt had passed away uh, in a drinking and driving accident. A couple of days later, Jacob goes to Matt's funeral. And as he comes up on the casket and he looks down at once was his best friend, he finally breaks down. Because he'd been holding it in for 48 hours. And he says, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I stopped caring. I'm sorry that I stopped reaching out. I'm sorry I stopped praying. God, I'm sorry I gave up. And as he turns around, he sees Matt's mother heartbroken and devastated. He wraps his arms around her. And Matt's mother looks at Jacob and she says, You know what hurts the most? Is that I can't find peace in my heart. I can't find comfort to know that my son is in a better place by the way that he was living his life. I ask us a serious question tonight, and my hope is that every single individual here will be very honest with herself. If you die tonight, 
at your funeral, which tears would your family cry? Tears of joy because they know you're in a better place in heaven. Or would they be filled with doubt and uncertainty because you live a very worldly life? Or do you even know? What if I told everybody in this auditorium, if you died today and you thought you'd go to heaven, come to this side of the room. Or if you died, you think you'd go to hell, come to this side of the room. Or if you really don't know, come to the middle. Where would you stand? More importantly, where would the people that God has placed in your life, by your example, where would they stand? Tonight I ask us the question, what's most important to you? Is it to get up every day to be more like Christ? Is it to get up each day with the mindset of what can I do today for my God that's going to impact His kingdom and increase the population of heaven? Do we as a church get more excited to go out shopping and to buy new clothes or a pair of new shoes than we do when we see a visitor who's never been to church before? Do we get more excited to go to a Tennessee Titans football game or to a Nashville Predators hockey game than we do when we sit and watch someone be baptized in the water? I ask us the question, what's most important to you? Tonight, I want us to look at the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, the Christians in Rome. I want us to look at the first chapter, and what I want for us, and my hope is that we can pull from Scripture some things that fired up Paul about being a Christian, some things that excited him about being a child of God. And my hope for every single individual here is that when we leave here tonight, that you'll not only realize that God is awesome, but if you're a child of His, that's a privilege. If you look with me in Romans chapter 1, we'll start in verse 8. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 8, it says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. It excited Paul to hear about other Christians doing God's will, doing work for God. It excited Paul to hear about the Romans' faith being spoken of throughout the whole world. And then we look in verse 9, he says, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Paul loved to pray for other individuals. Paul loved to pray for his brothers and sisters in Christ. How often do we sit down with an individual or we'll talk with someone we love or a friend or a co-worker and at the end of that conversation we end it by saying, oh, I'm going to pray for you. I'll pray for you. And then nighttime comes, we hit our knees to pray to God and then it's God, please be with me. Me, me, me. Me. Paul says, when I'm going to pray for you or when I say I'm going to pray for you, God is my witness. I'm going to pray for you. Brothers and sisters, when we say we're going to pray for somebody, let's pray for somebody. And we look in verse 10. 
making requests, if by some means now at last I, might, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts so that you may be established. That spiritual gift here is not the idea of Paul laying the hands on somebody and them giving the gift of prophecy or the ability to speak in tongues. The spiritual gift that Paul is talking about is that he wanted to come use the gift, the knowledge that Christ, that God has given them so he can help the brothers and sisters in Rome that were part of the church grow closer to God. And then you look in 12, he says, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Well, where would the encouragement take place? The brothers and sisters that were part of the church in Rome would be encouraged by learning more about God, learning what it takes to be a child of his. And they would be excited and encouraged by learning more about the God that they serve. And Paul would be encouraged by watching young brothers and sisters in the faith grow closer to God. That's where the encouragement would take place. And then we look in 13, he says, Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles, I am a debtor. Focus upon that word, both to Greeks and the barbarians, both to wise and the unwise. Paul says, I'm a debtor. That's the mindset that he lived with. The idea that he owed it to the world. People that did not know God, had no relationship with God. Paul lived with the mindset that I owe it to them to let them know about the Savior. Friends, if you call yourself a Christian, my hope is that you closely associate the word debtor with the word Christian. We owe it to the community of Mount Juliet to tell them about a Savior. We owe it to our friends and our family. Let it sink in. Your friends, your family equals your responsibility. Your friends, your family equals your responsibility. If it wasn't so, God would have never placed them in our lives in the first place. Your family, your friends... Your responsibility. And then you look in verse 15. He says, so as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Paul says, with everything that's in me, I am ready to what? To preach the gospel. Friends, it fired up Paul about being a Christian. He loved being a child of God. He loved watching other individuals who were broken and felt like they had no direction. And introducing them to a Savior and watching them change their life around. I ask the question again to everyone here tonight, what's most important to you? If I offered everybody in here a million dollars or the chance to have a Bible study with someone who's never studied God's Word before, really doesn't have faith at all, a matter of fact, they might even be called an atheist because they really don't believe in anything. Which would you choose? A million dollars? Or the Bible study? A lot of y'all are thinking, oh, that's crazy. That's not even realistic, Chris. Is it not? Turn with me to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, and look at verse 26. 
Matthew 16, verse 26. He says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? When I read that, I see that a soul is worth more than the whole world. And last time I checked, I can't even buy the city of Mount Juliet with a million dollars. My point is this. We're not bad people if we thought about taking the money. The idea is what kind of value do you place upon a soul? So many times we pray to God, help me save my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister. Help me to save my cousins, my co-workers, my best friends since high school. And we pray that prayer, and then we come to church on Sunday, and then it's like, where was the invite? We say, God, do this. God, please be with me. Help me to reach out to them. I really love them. I want them to go to heaven with me. But we never offer Bible studies to them. One thing that kills me about being a Christian, that upsets me to my heart, is we will go all around the world and we will preach the gospel. But we won't preach it across the dinner table. We will go across the world. We will get on a plane and go 13 to 14 hours. But we won't even teach across the dinner table to people that we say I love you to on a daily basis. Friends, every day we walk elbow to elbow with people that don't know God. And we have the opportunity, we can be like Jesus and we can look upon those people with compassion and we can start having a heart for other individuals and we can start filling up these church pews. And we'll be sitting here so packed tight we can look at them like people of the world does. I can't invite that individual to church. Why? He struggles with alcoholism. That person's a druggie. This woman has how many different babies with how many different dads? They dress this way. He's known around the community for this. Ain't no way my family's sitting by him in a church pew. Friends, what kind of value do you place upon a soul? What kind of value did Paul place upon a soul? Look with me in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Starting in verse 1. Romans 9 verse 1. He says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Paul, why do you have great sorrow and continual grief? And three, he says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, meaning separated from Christ. For my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, Paul says, I wish I was a curse, meaning separated from God, an eternity without God. That's the kind of value that Paul placed upon another person's soul, that he was willing to make that statement. Friends, do we love our families? Do you love your friends? Do we have a heart 
for the lost souls? Last time I checked, people that love each other, people that love each other, they don't let each other go to hell. People that love each other don't let each other spend an eternity without God. Friends, what's most important to you? Is it to get up every day, shine for God, and to take as many members of your family and all of your friends to heaven with you? Is that one of the, the, the things that you think about on a daily basis? Does your life reflect that at all? Look with me in Exodus 32. Exodus 32 and verse 32. Here Moses is, is praying the same thing that we just read about, about Paul saying, I wish I was a curse. Here Moses is praying for the Israelites, the same thing to God. In 32 he says, yet now... If you will forgive their sins, talking about the men of Israel, he says, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Paul says, God, if you can't forgive them of their sin, blot me out. That's the kind of compassion that Moses had for other individual souls. He valued Someone who has no relationship with God, he valued their soul. What kind of value do we place upon a soul? See what God says to Moses in 33. He says, And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. It's almost as if God's saying to Moses, You can't. Because every individual that I've ever created that's ever walked the face of this earth, they have the same choice that every other individual has. They can either choose to live for me or they can choose to live for the world. But at the end of the day, it's their choice. Friends, every single one of us here decides whether or not we spend an eternity in heaven or hell by the way we live our lives. It's your choice. It's your choice. Everybody in here, the day that your heart stops beating, that's it. No second chances, no redos. All that matters at that point is whether or not you lived your life for God. No mulligans, no video game reset button. That's it. At your funeral, your friends and family can't pray you into heaven. And you best believe that your preacher on that day can't preach you into heaven. All that matters at that point is whether or not you lived your life for God. I truly believe that every single person, it's almost as if they have a puzzle piece in their heart that only God can feel. And if you don't have that puzzle piece, the truth is, is you're incomplete. And we can go throughout our whole entire life and try to put worldly things in, pieces, in the place of that puzzle piece that only God can feel. But at the end of the day, 
when we're done lying to ourselves, we're still incomplete. And if you're incomplete and you have no relationship with God, the truth is you don't offer your loved ones really anything that means anything. You only offer them momentary happiness, and that fades away. If you love your friends, if you love your family, God is the only option. The only option. And once we decide that God's the only option, the next mindset that we should have is now I want to introduce my friends and my family to a Savior. Tonight, as I offer the invitation, if you've never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, my prayer is that you would consider it over the next couple of days, maybe even weeks. When you're alone, I want you to really dwell on the best reason, the best excuse of why you've never came up or became a Christian, became a child of God. And when you come up with that reason, I want you to write it down on a piece of paper. And then I want you to find a Bible. Flip to one of the Gospels. And then write down all the things that Jesus Christ went through to die for your sins. At the end of the day, when you compare the both, you'll quickly realize one doesn't amount to the other. Maybe you're a Christian. Lately you seem broken. You feel beat down. You're standing on the sand and you're wondering how you got there. And just a couple months ago you were standing on the rock. If there's any way that we can help you tonight, my prayer is that no one would leave here not being right with God. There's anyone that we can help tonight. Come as we stand and sing. There's a fountain.